Good morning. Uh, I am called up from the subs bench. It's, um, it's time to get heretical. Of course not. Um, that's absolutely not what's happening here. So yes, um, poor Andrew's been struck down um, with the flu. He looked, he looked miserable this morning when I picked up Finlay. Uh, be praying for him. Um, uh, watching Ireland lose yesterday didn't help and watching Man United struggle on later is going to be uh, also um, contributing to his trials. So my name's Thomas. Uh, I'm one of the elders um, here in Village. Um, if you don't recognize me, I spend most over in East, um, but it's always a joy uh, to be here. Um, if you're new or if, um, yeah, if you're new, we've been working our way through the book of First Corinthians. Um, we split the first section, uh, we split it into a couple of different sections as we walk our way through. Um, and this first section is called the Imperfect Church. So, um, quick reminder of the con- context Paul had planted a church in this place called Corinth a few years prior to this letter. Uh, and after getting reports of what's letter and um, of another letter we read in Second Corinthians, um, and we've called this series the Imperfect Church because the Corinthians were far from perfect. Um, t- to be called a Corinthian would have been being called a pervert. Um, it was a wild place, um, the, the kind of place, uh, I don't know, like a, like a modern Las Vegas or something, like just somewhere where weird stories, um, it's just, it was a, a tough place to, 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 to be a Christian, a, a tough place for the church to be the church. Um, and what we're seeing is that the culture of the society around the Corinthian church was influencing the culture of the church. Uh, and uh, listen, no church is perfect. Um, this church is not perfect. If that's what you're looking for here, you come to the wrong place. We're trying our best. Um, the, uh, our, the reminder is, as we read this, not to look and laugh at the Corinthians' imperfections, but to remind us of our imperfections, to remind us of God's perfection, of his sufficiency in all things. So the first part of this letter, Paul is addressing one particular issue. Um, one thing uh, is, that is so serious that in spite of all the other things that were going on, and there were a lot, uh, he decides to address it first. So the church is on the brink of falling apart because of disunity. There are disagreements uh, about who is the best teacher, and it's formed all kinds of cliques and factions. And it's this kind of behavior in the church that Paul says he, that, that needs to end. This is what needs to be knocked on the head. So the church cannot be divided because the church is the body of Christ, and Christ cannot be divided. And so disunity in the church is not representing who Christ is. And for the church to treat each other in this way is to live as if they haven't been saved, as if they don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. And so that's what's going on to our passage this morning. So uh, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll get stuck in. Uh, Father, we are so grateful for uh, your work among us. So, so grateful for your work um, all throughout history, um, that you have brought us to this place uh, where we get to read your words, uh, not as some intellectual endeavor, but uh, as a way to see your salvation plan unfolding, uh, as a mirror to lives as we spot our imperfections, as we're convicted, uh, as we see how to repent, as we come to you again, Lord Jesus, uh, the bread of life. Uh, be with us, Holy Spirit, as we look at your word um, in the lack of my ability to be able to prepare for this morning. Uh, may your spirit be even more present among us. Uh, you are the one who changes hearts, Lord, not me. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, 
uh, I didn't always, but I am now confident to say I love babies. I am a big fan of babies. Uh, they make me broody. Uh, they make me just want to have cuddles. Even after having a really difficult parenting day, um, the sight of seeing our children asleep in bed makes, convinces me that they are yet again angels. Um, but here's the thing about babies. They're pretty useless. Uh, they don't contribute much to society. They don't do anything for themselves. They don't take themselves to the toilet. They uh, all they do is take, 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 take. Um, but we still love them. They are uh, valued members of our society. Um, arguably could be more valued. Uh, we'll not get into that. We can't get enough of them. Um, so how is it that a culture obsessed with performance um, and what you can achieve and contribute can be so in love with these wee creatures that don't think except drain resources? Well, here's why. Babies are meant to be cute. <laughs> They're meant to just eat and sleep and drool and poop. That's their job in life. They're meant to be immature. But you know what is not cute? Adults who act like babies. Uh, maybe you know someone like this, uh, someone who is selfish, someone who demands attention, someone who wants their way uh, all the time, someone who complains and kicks up a fuss when things aren't going their way. More annoying than a fully good adult who acts like a child. Uh, my wife would often say that about me, and she's often right. Um, but the point is here that there's something not right to us about adults who behave like children, who behave like infants. It's just not what we're supposed to be like. Not only are we meant to develop physically with time, uh, it's natural and good that we also develop emotionally. Uh, and there's a name for when this doesn't happen, it's development, and it means you've stopped developing. Uh, so you may be physically grown up, but emotionally, you're still a child. And just as we're meant to grow up physically and emotionally, Paul shows us too in this passage that we're meant to grow up spiritually. And the problem for the Corinthians was they had spiritual arrested development. They were supposed to be more mature in their faith than they were. They, uh, it seems a problem behind the disunity, the, the, the main issue, the Paul's first part of this letter, the main issue behind that um, was a lack of spiritual maturity. So their spiritual immaturity was having a harmful effect on the church. So in order to address the disunity, the big problem here, the thing that was tearing the church apart, he actually had to address the thing before that. He had to address their arrested spiritual development. Um, so what do we do? So, so what to do uh, where we get to today? Well, um, the big idea, if you like, this is what we're going to take away from the text, is that spiritual maturity is joining God in his work and trusting only him for growth. Spiritual maturity is joining God in his work and trusting only him for growth. Now, uh, some of you are new to faith and some of you have never come across this idea of spiritual maturity. Um, so let's just pause for sort of establish what that is um, before we go any further. So when you put your trust in Jesus to save you, uh, what's happening is that you realize that you're a sinner cut off from God and under his wrath, but that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, the wrath of God was placed on him instead of on us, and Jesus, in doing that, defeated sin so that we can be united with God and enjoy life and freedom forever. That's, that's the basis of what it means to become. Uh, if you're a Christian this morning, this is what has happened to you at some point in the past. 
And there are three ramifications for our salvation, okay? There's three uh, results, three uh, effects. So, so firstly, when we trust in Jesus, we are free from the penalty of sin, okay? We're no longer under God's wrath. We, we never have to experience his anger towards us because of our sin. Jesus took our punishment on, on our behalf so that we're free of the penalty of sin. Secondly, when we trust in Jesus, we'll one day be free from the presence of sin. So that means that through his work on the cross, Jesus has secured our place in the presence of God in the new creation forever and ever. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more pain, no more cheating. There'll be none of the injustice that we see in this world. There'll be no, there will be no sin, and that's, why it's, uh, and that's what it will look like in heaven. So we're free of the sin from the presence, will be free from the presence of sin, Thirdly, when we trust in Jesus, we're saved from the power of sin. So this means that when we trust in Jesus, we receive the Spirit, uh, like we looked at last week, uh, who empowers us to be able to uh, empowers us to be able to not choose sin. So in other words, when we become Christians, we no longer have to sin. We can choose not to. We can choose the way of life, not the way of death. You know, you'll know that this doesn't mean that you never sin again. We have the choice to not sin anymore, but as we know that, that we, give, we, we don't necessarily make that choice well all the time. And while we're assured that we will never face the penalty of sin ultimately, and someday we will no longer be in the presence of sin, we do keep on struggling with sin in our lives. So um, a, a Scottish theologian pastor who's, who's working and living in America uh, puts it this way, his name's Alistair Begg, sin no longer, but it still remains. Sin no longer reigns, but it still remains. Maybe that sounds familiar to you in your life. It certainly does for me. And so what's happening between becoming a Christian and being brought into the presence of God forever and ever is that we're in this process uh, of sanctification, okay? Long, scary word, but basically it's, it's, this word sanctification is the word, uh, is the word used to describe the process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus, it, it becoming more and more holy, so in this process, we become less like our old nature, the, our life before Jesus, and we become more and more like Jesus from what the Bible describes as spiritual maturity. And so the Bible naturally uses images, the, the imagery of children to, to growing up to describe this process. So it's mentioned loads in the New Testament. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll, you'll see Paul talks about maturity a lot. It seems to be one of his favorite words. It's one of the goals of his ministry to see the entire church grow up into the fullness of Christ. Uh, in, in 2 Peter 3.18, it's described as, uh, gro- maturity is described as growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ could spend a whole sermon talking about how it's not, that's key, growing in the grace and knowledge. It's not just in the knowledge. So often we're convinced that growing in our faith is just getting more head knowledge, and that's not what the Bible says. Growing in the grace, growing in appreciation of what the Lord has done for us. And it's this process of spiritual maturity that Paul addresses in our passage here. And so there's five lessons from the rest of this text that I want us to see this morning. Five lessons on maturity, on growth and unity, and how all these things relate together. So first up, uh, from verses one to four, uh, let's look at it. Uh, we, and what we're getting at here from, this, from these four verses is that we are all capable of spiritual immaturity. So verses one to four. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, 
as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and be human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? So notice Paul doesn't address them as non-Christians. He's not saying that they aren't saved. And um, we can see this in two ways. uh, Paul addresses them using two terms that indicates he is addressing Christians, okay? Uh, What makes us brothers and sisters? It's named part of this church village. It's not being in the same missional community. It's, It's not living in the same street it's not even, in, in biblical terms, it's not necessarily being blood-related. We are brothers and sisters because we have been adopted by the Father through faith in the Son as made known to us by the Spirit. So we're adopted into the, the family of God, okay? Uh, and, and that's what Paul's hinting at here. We can read that there. Secondly, he says that they are in Christ. Sisters could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, Being in Christ is a term that Paul uses throughout this letter to describe Christians. It means that we have been united with Jesus through faith. We are literally in him. And these Christians are infants in Christ, but they are in him all the same. These Christians may be immature, but they are. And this shows us that it's, it's totally possible to be genuine Christian and be immature. You can have a saving faith in Jesus, but not be growing in your faith with him. And this is what's happened to to many of those in the church in Corinth. They were definitely saved. Paul knows this. He was there. He led them to Jesus. He he planted the church. He planted the gospel among them. He saw them raised from spiritual death to spirit, but they had stayed as babies. They weren't growing. The first time Paul was with them, they were new believers. They were spiritual infants. And there is nothing wrong with that. When we become Christians, we're born again into a new family, the family of God. And so because of our new birth, we are babies. We're infants. And babies are immature by nature. That's okay. That's okay. And the Promptians was they had stayed there. He says in verse 2 that as new Christians, they weren't ready for solid food. But, and even now, they're not ready for solid food. They haven't grown. They haven't matured. They haven't progressed at all. And that's a problem. Church, we need to be clear about this. It's possible to be a Christian for a number of years and still be immature. Physical maturity doesn't correlate to spiritual maturity. Time won't just won't make you more mature in a spiritual sense. So, and, and growing in faith depends not on time, but it depends on what spiritual food we're getting. So infants need milk. Uh, you don't give a baby steak. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of steak, let's be honest. It's also really cruel. Uh, when we're new in the faith, we need that spiritual milk. We feast on the basics of the faith. And, and gradually as we grow, we move on to more solid food. We don't move away from the cross. Like we said, I'm pretty sure Elder probably said this very explicitly last week. We, we don't graduate from the cross. We don't add 
to the cross. There's nothing else to add, but we grow in our appreciation of it. We grow in our understanding and our, and, and our awareness of, of the love of God. Um, so let me give you an example. Uh, say there's new believers. Say someone gives their life to Jesus, um, and this new Christian, she goes back into work full of joy. Someone, one of her colleagues asks her, how was your weekend? And she says, it's the, it was the best weekend of my life. Of course, that provokes the question, why? And she goes on to say, uh, stumbles her way through, saying, all I know is that Jesus died for me and rose again. And that's good. Uh, say fast forward a few years and this Christian has been feeding on a steady spiritual diet of God's word, of fellowship, of tending to the work of the Spirit. What does the gospel mean to her then? She doesn't give a more truthful or a more uh, correct, but she's able to give a deeper understanding. She's able to maybe word it better she, with more nuance. It's like learning a language Okay, she progressed. My language, my, I'm a Jim Appel, Thomas. I'm not able to have a fluent conversation with someone else in French other than tell them how to, I like playing football with my brother. But someone who's fluent in language is able to express deeper truths. Truth, nonetheless, not more true, but um, a, 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 a more succinct way of it. So, uh, so she's mature. This Christian will have matured in the faith. She's, she's, uh, she's uh, her experience of, of the Spirit is, is grown, and her knowledge is growing. Uh, all of these things, her sense of wonder and joy is still there, but it's now accompanied by a deeper understanding of what she believes. Spiritual growth depends on our spiritual appetite. What are we feeding ourselves? For Paul, being fed brings growth, just as in physical life. You can't go spiritually if you're not being fed. We need a solid, continual diet of God's word. That's how we grow in faith. So when you're part of village, we lead and teach and preach from the Bible. We want, you to, we want to feed you the solid food of God's word. But here's the thing. As babies grow a bit, they aren't just content to be fed. They want to start feeding themselves. Um, my daughter, my youngest daughter is two, and she is at this stage where she doesn't want any help at all. Like, please, Eden, let daddy do it. You're putting your food everywhere but your own mouth. It's like, no, I do it, I do it. What's your spiritual appetite like? Do you want to feed yourself? What are you feeding yourself? What's your diet like? We have access to reams and reams and terabytes and terabytes of information. We're a consumer generation. All we do is consume vast amounts of information every day. But if all I ever eat is junk food, I'm not going to be healthy. I can't go to McDonald's for the week except on a Sunday morning when I have like a healthy bowl of like fruit and muesli and then complain I'm getting fat. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I can't, that's, that is not fair. In the same way, I can't just consume spiritual junk all week and then come to church for an hour on Sunday and wonder why I'm not growing in my faith. It doesn't work like that. And Northern Ireland is filled with spiritual babies who thought of church service every week is going to spiritually sustain us. And it just doesn't work like that. Cultural Christianity just clogs our arteries and makes us malnourished. It's totally possible for us to be Christians, but to never grow. 
That's the first lesson. Lesson number two. Immaturity leads to division in the church. So verse four and five. Uh, again, yeah, verse four again. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul wants to be able to address them as mature believers. He should be able to address them as mature believers, but he says they're still of the flesh. They're behaving like they never received the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of the immaturity is that there's jealousy and strife among them. So remember what was going on in the church? There, was, there were arguments about who their favorite teacher was. Uh, in other words, they were all trying to put their preferences first. And this is what babies, what toddlers do. Think about it. Uh, of, of, so, so last night, um, don't judge me. Laura was out of town. We went to McDonald's. It's okay as a treat. We don't go every, every meal. <laughs> uh, and obviously, the kids got Happy Meals. Boys, and as I opened them both, I gave one to Eden and I gave one to Ezra. Ezra straight away wanted Eden's. So I tried to do a quick swap, thinking Eden wasn't sharp enough to know. Straight away, she knew, and she gave off. And then we had to swap back, but then Ezra wanted that. Listen, immaturity leads to division because it means we put our own preferences first. The Corinthians were preoccupied with themselves and their preferences rather than, with, rather than that with God. And division that just stems from a wrong preoccupation. And so maybe it's a hard truth for us to hear this morning that, that the, the church is not the place to come to have your own way. The church is the place to come and die to yourself. This, this, the church is a community of self-sacrifice, not self-promotion. This is a community of other-centeredness, not self-centeredness. So we're the body of Christ. He is our redeemer. He is our example. And so following his example, we lay down our rights and our preferences and our needs for the sake of our brothers and sisters. Remember last week, the last verse from the preach last week. What, what was it? Uh, verse 6. No. Yeah, verse 16 of last week. Uh, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We ha- but we have the mind, the mind of Christ not being this like all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful experience, not like this Neo from the Matrix thing where you now see everything in code and understand everything perfectly. The mind of Christ is a mind of, of death. It's a mind of giving up yourself for the sake of others. Preach. Gossiping about your brothers and sisters is immature and will cause division. L- living living by, 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 by this way of, 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 of death to self, uh, this is distinct in our culture. This is so different from the world around us. Spiritual babies are all me, 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 but spiritual grown-ups are all you, you, you. In a very real and tangible way, how we relate to and think about each other has a massive effect on the health of our church. Like, as I just said, uh, gossiping about your brothers and sisters is, is immature and will cause division. Ask yourself before you speak, is this loving? Is this true? Is it necessary that I share this? So let's strive for spiritual maturity because if we don't, we have the potential to destroy the church. A sobering thought. So our third lesson God gives the growth, verse six and seven. I planted, Apollos watered, 
but God gave the growth. That's so good, isn't it? He, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This is a really important point to grasp. The church is God's and he is the one that causes it to grow. Nobody else. The Corinthians are arguing about who is better, who is better, is it Paul, is it Apollos? And Paul makes it clear that, they are, that both of them are just servants of salvation, source of salvation. So the job of any leader or any member of the church family is to serve and obey God. And that's hugely liberating for us, isn't it? It's, it's God who grows the church, not us. We can have all the strategies and plans in place we want, but it's God who grows the church. It's God who is responsible for saving people, not us. Paul and Apollos are not saviors. They are not the gospel. They are not the Holy Spirit, the source of power. They are not God. They are uh, waiters at a table. They're tour guides. The faith, hap- the faith that happens when the food of God's word is served happens through them like a canal, like vessels there, but not from them like a spring. So don't think of them as the originators. They don't originate. They deliver. They serve. They point out what is going on. And it's the same for us. We're called to be on mission. Yes, we're called to live lives to display who Jesus is. Yes, we're called to share the good news of people, the good news of Jesus with people. Yes, but it's not on our shoulders to save anyone. Um, there was a guy uh, we were quite friendly with um, years ago in uh, when... Uh, Andrew and Jonathan uh, were, uh, owned a bike shop and um, there was a community that kind of got formed there and they went on lots of cycles together and it was good. And there was a guy, I remember, who uh, got involved. He was here studying at Queen's for a year, came on loads of night rides, loads of conversations, and he left not a Christian. And there was a, there was a moment of like, self-examination, like, like, did we not say the right things? Like we were so keen, like we were so desperate for this guy to know Jesus, and he left not knowing Jesus. But when you read this, that pressure it did. Paul actually goes as far as to say that he and Apollos are nothing. Now this doesn't mean you, you should, we treat our leaders as rubbish. Please don't. <laughs> uh, that's not. What, in fact, the Bible says the opposite that we should honor our leaders and teachers. But Paul is getting at here is that the in the work of people being of the work of people putting their trust in Jesus, it doesn't matter who shares the gospel because it's only God who can make that seed turn into. I think uh, for a lot of us, this is one of the things that maybe puts us off sharing the gospel. Maybe that we can get a bit disappointed if we don't see an immediate result. But listen to what Paul says at the end of verse eight. Each will receive wages according to his labor. So God doesn't reward us, reward us on how many people become Christians. He rewards us according to our faithfulness in the work. It's not up to us to save people. It's just up to us to be faithful in sharing and showing Jesus to people. There's people in this very room who have had relationships with friends that stretch back years from living with them uh, to now working with them and constantly sharing the gospel over years. And it's not their responsibility to save their, their friends, their family, their co-workers. It's just their job to continue sharing. That's what God asks us to take part in.
And God knows that. He's pleased with that. So let's be encouraged that it's God that gives the growth and not us. Fourthly, maturity leads to unity. Verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So Paul says that whoever plants and whoever waters the seed are one. What does that mean? Well, let me try to sum it up. In verse 5, Paul says, uh, Paul describes the ways that him and Apollos serve the church. He says that one plants the seed and one and the other waters the seed. And it seems like it's not really important who does what because they're each just serving in the roles that God has assigned to them. So how does this relate to maturity and unity? Well, when we are mature, our personal preferences are not important. And so we, we can be content to serve in the role that God has put us in, working together, trusting God to bring the growth. Does that make sense? It, it really is that simple. When, when we put our personal preferences aside, we trust the role that God has given us and for him to bring the growth, that's it. John Piper comments that Paul and Apollos had both purpose and unity independence. So they were one in their purpose of glorifying God through people being introduced to the Lord Jesus. And they were also one in their dependence on God to cause growth and watered seed, to cause dependence on God to cause the planted seeds to be watered and grow. So the point is this, if we as a church are all focused on spreading the gospel of God as we do it, we will have unity. That if, and if that's our goal, we'll be less concerned about the roles that we have to play. We keep our eyes on the main thing. We keep our eyes on Jesus. And as the old hymn says, everything else grows strangely dim. Everything else goes strangely dim. Maybe you think that we should have more of a high-profile role in the church. Or stepping into a role that God might be prompting you into. Either way, please hear me this morning when I say your personal preference and how you serve the church means nothing when it comes to the church's mission of sharing the gospel and trusting God. This doesn't mean, that, please don't hear me wrong, this doesn't mean that he doesn't care about you. It doesn't mean that he, he loves you more or less than he loves other people. It doesn't mean that he thinks other people are more or less valuable or important than you. It just means that in his wisdom and for his, God assigns each of us to play our own part in serving his kingdom. Because the truth is, whatever any of us is able to do in the church, it's an undeserved gift from God, right? We're only here because of what Jesus has done for us. Without Jesus, we'd be lost and on our way to being lost forever. So instead of having an attitude of resisting how God has called you to serve, or being jealous maybe of how God has called other people to serve, have an attitude of complete thankfulness that God has called us at all. Gifts are gifts. We don't earn them. We just receive. Imagine being proud of, of a gift, like as if in a way that as if you earned it. Like how, how, how strange is that? Like imagine, uh, say, uh, say Jamesy, out of the goodness of his heart, decided to buy me a bottle of 16-year-old lag. That's L-A-G-A-V. <laughs> You're not taking notes. <laughs> 
uh, just because he wants to bless me, right? How, how daft would I look if I said to you, here, look at this gift James gave to me. Aren't I class? It just doesn't make sense. You'd look like a moron. You'd look mad. It's so self-entitled. The, the right attitude would be thankfulness. It would be joy that I received a lovely gift and to, to drink it uh, appropriately uh, in appropriate times. <laughs> Elder gave an example with this for, as a bike. Maybe that would have been, I realize now why he chose the idea of a bike and not a bottle of whiskey. So anyway, listen, when people in the church focus on the gift or the gifted rather than the giver of the gifts, it leads to chaos and confusion. So let's not be jealous or proud. Instead, have thankful hearts that God has made us a part of his family. And then we have the, the, the joy, the opportunity to, to serve him in that. All people serving the church in any capacity have one purpose and one purpose only. That's to, make, that's to make sure God is glorified through the salvation of souls and the building up of the body. And this is how maturity leads to unity. Each of us serving in the way God has called us to, trusting him to bring growth. And this leads to our final point. The church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. In other words, it's God. Have a look at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's fields. Now, we need to be a wee bit careful when we read this statement. Paul doesn't mean that we are fellow workers with God as a third worker. He, he, the original wording and context suggests it means Apollos and Paul are fellow workers with each other who belong to God. So this is another statement of God's supremacy, his authority, his rule. These fellow workers belong to God. So think of it this way. God is the farmer. He's the landowner, the Lord of the estate, and we are the farmhands who work for him. We are the leader working toward the same goal, but we are also working for him. And what does this mean? It means that he gets all the glory. We're not working for our own gain. We're not trying to build our own reputation. What we do here isn't about increasing the name of village. It's about increasing the name of Jesus. Our job, is to not make, our job isn't to make village well-known. Our job is to make Jesus well-known. Of God. The work is God's work, not our work. And so our role is to be like instruments in our master's hands. Uh, one of the... Um, most celebrated cellists in the world is Yo-Yo Ma, arguably the most celebrated cello player. Uh, now imagine after a concert, he leaves the stage and the crowd are going crazy. I don't know if that happens at classical gigs. Let's just pretend, like polite claps. Now imagine then after he leaves the stage, uh, the roadie comes out and like lifts the cello, like Simba Lion King style, like before the crowd, and the crowd start like going crazy again. It would be so weird. The cello didn't do anything. It was just played by Yo-Yo Ma. In the same way, we are just instruments. The only reason an instrument has any significance is because it's in the master's hands. Our job is to look beyond the instrument to the master. Our job is to allow ourselves to be used by God in his mission. The work is God's not ours. 
The church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. So quick recap. We are all capable of serving. And that immaturity can lead to division. But we realize that God gives the growth, that maturity leads to unity, and that the church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. I think this is significant. All spiritual is profitable for teaching, but this is significant for us. Um, The Spirit does wonderful work. Um, I believe in the power of the Spirit to move and to be able to heal people um, in moments like this. But I've never heard of a story where people become mature like that. I just don't think that's how the Lord intends it. Addressing spiritual immaturity takes time. We have to be patient. We have to keep showing up. We have to keep submitting to the Father. And so uh, this morning, leaving, you're not going to be leaps and bounds more spiritually mature, I don't think, um, than you were when you walked in. But it's another moment of laying down our life, of saying yes to Jesus. It's another moment of, of recognizing the wisdom of God as the crucified Christ. It's another moment when we're feasting on the bread and wine in remembrance of everything that Jesus has done and the nothingness that we have done. Uh, Can I invite you to stand? Uh, Listen, some of you might recognize this in your... I want to encourage you and not make you feel worse. Uh, It's... The Bible says it's God's loving kindness that calls us to repentance. Um, so I want to read a fairly lengthy it's a paragraph from Spurgeon that I think captures the tone of, um, of this passage. So it says, Are you mourning, believer, because you're so weak in the divine, because your faith is so little, your love so feeble, feeble? Cheer up, for you have cause for gratitude. Remember that in some things you are equal to the greatest and most full-grown Christian. You are as much bought with blood as he is. You are as much an adopted child of God as any other believer. An infant as truly a child of its parents as is the... An infant is as truly a parent as is the full-grown man. You are as completely justified for your justification is not a thing of degrees. Your little faith has made you your little faith has made you clean every whit. You have as much right to the precious things of the covenant as the most advanced believers, for your right to covenant mercies lies not in your growth, but in the covenant itself. And your faith in Jesus is but the token of your inheritance in him. You are as rich as the richest, if not in enjoyment, yet in real possession. The smallest star that gleams is set in heaven. The faintest ray of light has affinity with the great orb of the day. In the family register of glory, the small and the great are written with the same pen. You are as dear to your father's heart as the greatest in the family. Jesus is very You are like the smoking flax. A rougher spirit would say, put out that smoking flax. It fills the room with an offensive odor, but the smoking flax, he will not quench. You are like a bruised reed, and any less tender hand than that of the chief musician would tread upon you or throw you away, but he will never break the bruised reed. 
Instead of being downcast by reason of what you are, you should triumph in Christ. I'm in Israel, yet in Christ I am made to sit in heavenly places. Am I poor in faith? Still in Jesus I am heir of all things. Though less than nothing I can boast and, and vanity confess, yet if the root of the matter be in me, I will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the God of my salvation. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for your words. Uh, we thank you for your work. Uh, that we can be unified in you. Uh, that we don't have to strive for uh, maturity. That we don't have to, in a sense, try harder. But Lord, we welcome your work in our lives. Uh, we thank you that you, you don't cast us away from your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.